Scripture for this reading for this morning will be from the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Amen. I'm quite sure that the name Benedict Arnold is probably familiar to, to most of us. For it's a name that is associated with the idea of treason. But what most people probably don't know about Benedict Arnold is that before he committed treason against the colonial states of America, he was actually a general in the colonial army. He was a much accomplished general in the colonial army during the American Revolutionary War. However, as the war was being fought, General Arnold found himself frustrated by the way the war was progressing, and he found himself offended that he was not receiving the notoriety and the accolades that he thought were sufficient for the sacrifices that he was making in service to the American colonies. And therefore, he thought that he would get the jump on his comrades because he didn't think that the American colonies could defeat the British. And so he decided that he was going to switch sides and he was going to get in cahoots with the British. And he contacted the, the English and decided that he would turn traitor. He had been put in charge of West Point. And he had determined that he was going to sell West Point to the British for 20,000 pounds. Thankfully, his plans were interrupted, and General Washington labeled him a traitor for his proposed treasonous act. And even today, most people would argue that Benedict Arnold committed what may be greatest act of treason in American history, and yet it is not the greatest act of treason ever committed. For there was an act of cosmic treason that was committed that far exceeded the treasonous act of one Benedict Arnold or anyone else. It was the act of rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden. 
For what Adam and Eve did essentially was commit treason. They rebelled, a cosmic treason against the goodness and the grace and the mercifulness of a sovereign God. They rebelled against his goodness. They rebelled against his grace. And ever since the Garden of Eden, every human being has come into the world as rebels. We became rebels in the Garden of Eden. And do you understand that the grand and the gracious storyline of the Bible is simply this? God reaching down to be gracious to rebels. That's the whole storyline of redemptive history. The whole Bible is God in gracious pursuit of the rebellious. And that's the whole storyline of the Bible. When you come to the prophecy of Jonah, Jonah becomes the whole Bible boiled down in four chapters. It is the storyline of the Bible in microcosm. God in gracious pursuit of the rebellious. The prophecy of Jonah is the storyline of the Bible. Rebels redeemed. Rebels redeemed. And as Jonah's story opens, this storyline is revealed. And we see in these six verses here a rebellious beginning. Then we see a resourceful God. And then again, we behold a rebellious solution. Notice the rebellious beginning. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on the board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You see this rebellious beginning because what God does is God is going to send Jonah to a rebelling people. Notice how it begins. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the word that came to Jonah was clear, and it was direct. Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God sends Jonah to a rebelling people. He sends them to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great city, as the Bible says. It was indeed a great city. It was a city that was great by any measure that the world would measure greatness. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which was the most prominent and powerful empire upon the 
face of the earth at the time. And it was the capital city of this great nation in the world. It was a city that you would have known simply by the name. It was New York. It was London. It was Tokyo. It was the most prominent city in the most prominent nation in the land. It was filled. It was filled with great things. It was filled with lush and fabulous gardens. It was filled with a huge and prosperous irrigation system. It was filled with great and magnificent walls and huge displays of magnificent art. It had great and grand libraries. There was much commerce. There was much learning. It was a large city. It was filled, as it says later on in chapter 3 and and verse 3, a large city that took as many as three days to walk, to traverse, containing somewhat somewhat upwards of 120 to 130,000 people at any time. It was a city known by all. And like New York or London, you only had to say Nineveh. You knew what city you were talking about. You knew where it was. You knew what it was. It was a great city in any stretch of the imagination, but it was not only great for what it was, it was great also for what it did. And that is, it was full of sin. It was a city given over to sin. The greatness of the city was not just in its size and in its population and in its prominence, but the greatness of the city was also in its sin. You can imagine that a large metropolis like this would be filled with the wickedness of human hearts. And indeed it was. It was filled with idolatry. It was filled with false worship. It was a pagan city. And notice that God sends Jonah to speak out against a pagan city. This is not Jerusalem. This is not Bethlehem. This is not God's city. This is not the people of God. This is not Israel. This is Assyria and this is Nineveh. This should remind us of a very important principle, and that is that all nations are accountable to God. All people and all nations are to be held in account before God. We know Israel was accountable before God, and oftentimes she, he called Israel into account, did he? But do we know that God is Lord over all nations? Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 4 and the following reminds us that that God calls all nations into account. In Amos chapter 1 and verse 3, we see God again calling all the nations, Damascus and, and Syria, not those who are in covenant with him as his own people does he simply call into account, but he calls all nations. All people must give an account for their waywardness and their rebellion against God. 
In Psalm chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? When, it God, when God sits in the heavens and laughs, and the Lord holds them all in derision. Beloved, there is not a people or nation on this earth who will not answer before God. Not a nation, not a people, and not a person. For you do understand that Jesus is not simply Lord of the church. Jesus is Lord of all. That's why we say every, every Sunday in our common confession together from Philippians chapter 2, every knee shall bow. In heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he is not simply Lord of the church. He is not simply Lord of the redeemed. He is Lord over all. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And here is God reminding Jonah and the world, that he is God over all. And he holds all, he holds all in account for their rebellion. And so he sends Jonah to these rebelling people, but notice that he sends Jonah to these rebelling people, and Jonah is a rebelling prophet. He sends a rebelling prophet to these rebelling people. God is gracious to these rebellion people. His grace to them is that he's going to send them a prophet. However, like the Ninevites, what we see is that Jonah himself is rebellious. He is a rebellion prophet. Notice what God says. Arise and go to Nineveh. Arise and go to Nineveh. The word of the Lord was, was sure. The, the will of the Lord in this instance was clear. And yet Jonah's first instinct was to rebel. And you know, rebellion comes to us naturally. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 tells us that we are sons and daughters of disobedience. We come into the world rebellious. You don't have to teach your children how to rebel. Just leave them alone. Because we are by nature rebellious people. We rebel. We rebel because we act like we act like we don't know what the will of God is. And yet, beloved, I would submit to you, like Jonah, that the will of God is clearer than most of us want to or are willing to admit. You know, most people, and unfortunately most of us in here, we always want and searching around for the will of God as if it was some magical formula out there. And then we live our lives in, in disobedience because we claim that we are not clear or sure what the will of God is. Most people are looking for a word from God but what we fail to do is to look into the Word of God. 
like Jonah, if you would look to the word of God, you would find the will of God. God's will was clear because God's word was clear. It was that way to Jonah, it's that way to us. You don't know the will of God, it's very clear. If you go into the word of God, it's very clear. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, the will of God is for husbands to love their wives. That's pretty clear. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, the will of God is for wives to submit to their husbands. That's pretty clear. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 30, the Bible says that it's the will of God for, children's to, for children to obey their parents. That's pretty clear. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, it says the will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, the will of God is that you would be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 is the will of God that you give thanks in all things. Beloved, the will of God is clear if you would go to the word of God. So it was with Jonah. There was no misunderstanding what God wanted Jonah to do. He heard the word of God. But our rebellion is not rooted in the fact of ignorance. Rebellion is not rooted in ignorance. Rebellion is just rooted in rank disobedience. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to know the will of God, and so we don't go to the Word of God. And we want to rebel. We are by nature rebellious people. And so instead of rising and going to Nineveh, Jonah rose and sought to flee to Tarshish. Now I am sure that there are people in Tarshish who needed to hear the word of God. But that is not what God sent Jonah to do. And how often do we do that? We rationalize our disobedience and our rebellion by thinking we can make something good come out of it. I'll just go down to Tarshish, God. You send somebody else to Nineveh. I'll preach in Tarshish. I'm sure they need to hear the word of God too. Beloved, partial disobedience only leads to full disobedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. Jonah rose. God told him to rise. He rose, but then that's, when the, that's where the obedience stopped. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish. And notice, notice, Jonah, Jonah was not just fleeing or refusing to do the will of God. Here's the real issue. He was fleeing from the presence of God. So it's not just him not wanting to do what God has called him to do. Jonah doesn't want anything to do with God. 
Because that's really the issue when you rebel. When you rebel against God's word, you are not simply rebelling against what God has said. You are rebelling against God. And this is Jonah's problem. For he was rebelling against God. Do you know what? Rebellious people and rebellious prophets don't stress God. Sorry. He's not stressed by your rebellion. And you know why? Because he's a resourceful God. He is a resourceful God. Our God is resourceful. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that these rebellious people and these rebellious prophets are not going to stress out God because he has unlimited resources at his disposal. And what he doesn't have, he can create. Jonah ran. Jonah ran. Jonah ran from God. And when Jonah ran from God, Jonah discovered what anybody does when they run from God. And that is when you run from God, you run smack in the God. In that sermon that Father Mapple preached in Moby Dick that you haven't read, read, but you should, he says this, Jonah thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign. Will carry him into countries and places that God does not reign. Oh, the folly of it all. Our God is a resourceful God, and we see the nature of his resourcefulness is grounded in his character. Who is this God that Jonah is rebelling against? Who is this God that we seek to run away from? The first thing you ought to know is that he is an omnipresent God. Omnipresent simply means, Josh, that he is everywhere present everywhere present. Twice, you see that twice in verse 3, Jonah is said to have fled the presence of the Lord. How, beloved, how does one escape the presence of the Lord? The impossibility of that is staggering. If you just contemplate it for a moment, where are you going? The psalmist says in Psalm 139, beginning in the verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where are you going? Where are you going? Jeremiah chapter 3, I mean chapter 23, beginning in verse 23. 
The Bible says, I am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God, God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not feel heaven and earth? The idea of God's omnipresence is not that God is simply present or partially present. The idea is that he fills the place. He is fully present in all of his being everywhere at all times. However, when you are in rebellion, the last person you want to see is God. And that's Jonah. The last person you want to hear is God. And so you flee. You flee from what you believe is the word of God. You flee because you don't want to hear the will of God. But everywhere you go, there God is. Because there is no getting away from God. And thank God there's no getting away from God. Do you know that the, that, that, the, that the joys of heaven and the horrors of hell are rooted in the same reality? Do you realize that the happiness in heaven and the horrors that are attained in hell are rooted in the same realities, and the reality is the presence of God. For the rebellious, the presence of God is a horrible, terrible reality, but for the redeemed, it is their hope. It is their joy. Heaven is heaven because God is there in all of his grace and mercy and goodness. Hell is hell because God is there in all of his wrath. Everywhere you go, it's the presence of God. You don't hide from God. A better course of action is to hide in God. You hide in him, not from him. You hide in him. For he hideth my soul, the songwriter says, in the cleft of the rock. And indeed he does. It is God's delight for you to find refuge in him. It is God's delight that you would know Christ as that rock in whom you can hide from the ravages of the wrath of God against rebellious sinners. You don't run from God. You run to him. You don't hide from God. You hide in him. God is not only omnipresent, but we also learn here that our God is omniscient. Which again, Josh, is just God being all-knowing. All-knowing. God not only knew where Jonah was, God knew where Jonah was going. 
He not only knew that Jonah got up and was going down and getting in a ship, but God knew where the ship was headed. God knew what Jonah was thinking. He didn't only see him. He knew what was on his mind. He knew what was in his heart. Omnipresence is God seeing all things. Omniscience is God knowing all things. He knows the thoughts. He knows the intent of Jonah's heart. Jonah thought that he was going to pull one over on God. But you know what the Bible says? Psalm 19, 94 rather, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows your thoughts. Psalm 139 and verse 2. He discerned my thoughts from afar. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. During the time of Noah, the Bible says that God knew that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men were only evil continually. He knows. Jeremiah chapter 17 beginning in, in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. God knows you. God knows you, beloved. And this is a terror for those who are seeking to flee from him. That God knows you. He knows what you're planning before you planned it. He knows what you're devising and scheming before you set to devise and scheme it. He knows your intentions. And for those who are trying to flee from God, this is a terror. But for those who are seeking to find comfort and refuge in God, this is a comfort. And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 23, Search me, O Lord. I don't mind you knowing me. I want you to know me. Search me, O oh Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. If you find anything of rebellion and wickedness in my heart, O oh Lord, reveal it, and I bid thee to remove it this hour. That's the joy of knowing that the Lord knows you. For his knowledge of you is so that you would repent of your sin, turn from your rebellion, and come to him because you know there is no other refuge. And the Lord who delights to know you, in spite of your rebellion, he loves you. This is amazing reality, beloved. Have you ever contemplated that? Just for a moment, that he who loved, who knows you best, loves you most. Now, most people love you, but at the root of that is because they don't know you. If they really knew you, if they really knew your thoughts and the intents of your heart, if they really know all the things that you're planning and scheming all the time, but you just don't have time to work it out. Would they really love you still? And yet he 
who knows you most loves you best. This is why, beloved, this is why. This is just one of the many reasons that I don't tolerate, I don't discuss, I, I don't debate, and I don't stomach people who believe that Christians, genuinely Christians, can lose their salvation. Because he who saved me knew the worst about me when he saved me. And is there going to be some new information that's going to come down the line that's going to so suddenly make him change his mind? Of course not. And that is the comfort of the redeemed. My God knows me and I am still his. I want him to know me. That just makes his love for me all the more precious because he knows me. See how resourceful our God is? He's, he's all present. He's everywhere present. He's all knowing and, and he's all powerful. Jonah fled from God and perhaps, perhaps he thought God would find him too difficult to deal with. He said, maybe I'll just be difficult and God say, well, I ain't got time to be dealing with John. That's, that, that nut is too hard to crack. Let me go find someone who's a little more pliable. I ain't got time to be dealing with obstinate. <laughs> Some of you get that reference. Beloved, when you read the Bible, if there's one thing that really comes across, it should come across to you, and that is the power of God as a beast. The power of God is a beast. It is not subject to the whims of nature nor the will of men. Notice, both Jonah and the sea are in the hands of El Shaddai, that all-powerful God. And he is able to turn both the sea and Jonah any which way he pleases. So Jonah believes himself safe in this boat heading to Tarshish. But notice what happens in verse 4. The Bible says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. God hurled this great wind upon the sea. Why? Because God has a purpose. God has a plan. And his purposes and plans are not going to be thwarted by your schemes, desires, Job chapter 42 and verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can do all things and no purposes of yours can be thwarted. 
And if God had purpose for Jonah to go to Nineveh, guess what's going to happen? Oh, Jonah's going to Nineveh. Jonah is going to Nineveh. And this is what Jonah underestimates. He underestimates the will and the power of God. And therefore, he, like many of us, divides that we're going to, okay, we're going to box with God. We're just going to box with him. And, and maybe we'll wear him out. I can't knock him out. Maybe I just wear him down. He gets tired and he moves on. This great wind that God hurls, I like that word, he, word, he hurls it. He throws it at, this, at the sea and the sea against the ship. And the Bible says that the men begin to, to fight. The men begin to fight and, and they're fighting and and the thought that they have is that they are fighting against the wind and the waves. But you do understand that they're not fighting against the wind and the waves. But in that situation, the best that men and women can do against the power of God on display is to just call upon their idols and hopefully their idols will tell them or do something. And so that's what they do. They begin to cry out to their God. What shall we do? What are we going to do? And the best thing that their idols can tell them to do is to hurl some bags off the boat. It's the best their God got. There's this great wind that is being hurled against you. Hurl the bags. <laughs> hurl the suitcases. You know what Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35 says concerning the power of God? All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? sovereign power of God, beloved, is a sweet and awful place. Think about it. Has he determined to save you? Do you know that nothing can stop him? Nothing can thwart his plan or if it is his purpose to redeem you and to bring you into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, guess what's going to happen? He is prepared to use all of his resources. He is prepared to use all of his enemy energy. He is prepared to use all of his power to save you. As the singer said, ain't no mountain high enough. And ain't no valley low enough. And ain't no ship big enough to keep him from getting to you, Jonah. Or to you, beloved, or to you, or to me. But unfortunately, like Jonah, when God calls, many of us are sound asleep. 
sound sleep. Notice this rebellious sleep. Rather than obey God, the Bible says, and remarkably in my opinion, this is amazing. The Bible says that Jonah went to sleep. He went to sleep. Now, beloved, when you are expected to be awake, there are few things as offensive as being asleep. When you're in school, you're supposed to be paying attention. There's not too many more offensive things you can do than put your head on the desk and just go to sleep. When you are at work and you're supposed to be working and doing your task, there are few things as offensive that when the supervisor or the boss come around, you are sound asleep. When you come to church and a preacher is preaching, sweating, there are few things as offensive as falling asleep. So offensive is this that do you know that in the army, if you are on watch at wartime, and you fall asleep, the penalty for that is a court-martial and death. Because there are few things as offensive as falling asleep when you are supposed to be alert. This is why, this is why, beloved, that the sleep is often spoken of in negative terms in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 6 in verse 9 through 11. Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 13. Love not sleep, the Bible says. Love it not, lest you come to poverty. And this is particularly true when we are commanded to stay awake. When you are commanded to stay awake. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 36, Jesus says, but stay awake at all times praying that you may escape, may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And notice Jonah. Jonah is not just sleep. The Bible says that Jonah is in a deep sleep. He's sleeping in the midst of God's power. That is amazing. That is remarkable to me. But you know what that does? That is illustrative of the fact of Jonah's spiritual numbness. He is not just sleeping. He is in a deep sleep. And it's not just a deep sleep, but Jonah is the only one sleeping. Now, beloved, indeed, there is a time to sleep, but not in the midst of God's power. Not in the midst when God is doing something all around you. Not in the midst when God is calling you unto himself. That is not the time to sleep. But this, again, is illustrative of Jonah's spiritual numbness. God is doing mighty things around and in the midst of Jonah. And he is Sleeping. God is moving and showing himself strong, and Jonah is 
sleep. Listen. There is a time to sleep. But not on the gospel. You know Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God. Don't sleep in the midst of his power. Don't sleep when the power of God is at work all around you. Don't sleep as the gospel is being proclaimed. Wake up. Now is not the time to sleep. Don't you sleep on that 116. You wake up. Don't sleep in the midst of God's power. Jonah slept in the midst of God's power, but he not only slept in the midst of God's power, Jonah slept in the midst of pagans. This is amazing again. This is amazing again. Who has to wake Jonah up? It's the unbelievers. Jonah may have slept on what God was doing, but them unbelievers weren't sleeping. They knew that there was something going on. They knew there was something wrong. They knew that there was a power inherent in this storm that they had never experienced before. They knew that now was not the time to sleep. You know, they knew right then was not the time. They didn't know all that was going on, but they knew something was not right. They knew something was not right. And isn't it a shame, beloved, when the watching world can look at Christians in the church and know something. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. But I know as a Christian, something ain't right. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1? When Paul indicts the, the Christians for, in, for the Christian church in, in Corinth for indulging and allowing sexual immorality within their midst, he says it is a sexual immorality of such a nature that even the unbelieving world knows that's wrong. And you're tolerating it. What a shame. What a shame. That the hearts of God's people could be so rebellious. That the hearts of God's people could be so numb to the will and the way of God that even the unbelievers could know you're doing something wrong. It's a sign of falling asleep, not only in the midst of God's power, but what a shame when you fall asleep in the midst of, of pagans. And yet, here is the power of God. That God does not have an aversion to using the unrepentant to awaken the repentant so that the repentant may demonstrate repentance to the unrepentant. I'm not going to say that again. But God doesn't have an aversion to using the ungodly to wake up the godly so that the godly will repent 
and show the ungodly what repentance looks like. And so he does. He uses these men. They come and they arise, they, they, they awake Jonah, and they say, wake up, O oh sleeper. Wake up. And here's the irony of ironies. That they say to Jonah what Jonah should have been saying to Nineveh. Wake up. Call out to your God, for perhaps God will have thought, will give thought to us that we may not perish. There it is. Grace to the rebels. There it is. God is not going to let you just sleep. He's coming. And he's going to use all of his power to finally wake you up. Because his desire is to pursue rebels unto bringing them into the knowledge and the will of God. There it is. Grace to rebels. What a, what, what a marvelous grace-filled word and thought that is. Perhaps, he says, God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Perhaps if you get up and call on God, perhaps he will be gracious. Get up and call on God. Perhaps he will be merciful. And that's the operative word that really is perhaps. Perhaps. That's the operative word because you do understand that salvation isn't owed to anyone. Perhaps God will be gracious because salvation isn't owned to anyone. It is always by grace. God is not obligated at all to deal with any of us contrary to what we actually deserve. Jonah was a rebel. Jonah was treasonous. And like Nineveh, Jonah deserved But Jonah, if you would get up and call on God, perhaps he would be gracious. Perhaps he would look beyond your faults and see your needs. Perhaps he will grant you mercy. You know rebels don't deserve mercy. Traitors deserve to be hung. They deserve to be executed. And if you are anything like me, then you know that your life is that of a rebel. You know where you have come from. You know where you were when you were in rebellion against God. You know how rebellion marked out every thought and intent of your heart. The only hope that rebels have, beloved, is the mercy of God. That's the only hope. And so I say to you this morning, stop the rebellion. Stop the rebellion. God will. God will. Not perhaps. 
But if you call upon him this morning, I tell you, he will be merciful. Because now is the time. And today is the day of salvation. He has sent to you one greater than Jonah. And his name is Jesus. And he says, wake up. Salvation has come to your home and your heart today. Wake up. Stop rebelling. His will is best. Stop running. Find your rest in him. So I like the song says, and I can, it, is, it is my testimony that says, I, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran that hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed that you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath that this rebel deserved. And now all I know is grace. That's why you say hallelujah. That's why you say hallelujah. All this rebel has is Christ. Hallelujah, grace and hope have come to the rebellious. Hallelujah.